Funding for the Hinckley Report is made possible in part by the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation and the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report as a podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe at your go-to podcast platform. Promotional support for this episode of the Hinkley Report podcast is provided by Trib Talk, an award-winning news podcast from the Salt Lake Tribune. Join host Benjamin Wood, Tribune reporters, and community guests as they dive into the latest topics affecting Utahns. Find Trib Talk at sltrib.com or by searching for Trib Talk on most major podcast platforms. Tonight on the Hinkley Report, Utah's legislature moves closer to a special session and Democrats propose their own plans for tax reform. As the details of the plans emerge, constituents and community activists weigh in. And with the Judiciary Committee taking up the inquiry, Utah's leaders prepare for the next stage of the impeachment inquiry. Good evening, and welcome to the Hinkley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinkley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Representative Brian King, House Minority Leader, Kate Bradshaw, Bountiful City Councilwoman, and Brian Schott, Managing Editor of UtahPolicy.com. So glad to have you all with us today. We have a lot to talk about. Uh, we're gonna start with you, Representative, though. Uh, on the program last week, we had a chance to hear from Republican leadership about their tax reform plan. This week we have the Democrats. Right. You have put out a plan, we want to talk about that and start talking about the two plans and put them together. Tell us what the heart is of the Democrats' plan. Well, there are a couple of components that are the heart of the plan. The first is that we uh, agree that there are a lot of working Utahns and, and non-working Utahns, retirees, who could use a tax cut and they're struggling to make ends meet. So we are willing to agree that the tax cut that's proposed by the Republican Party, the leadership in the House and the Senate, for the first uh, $150,000 of a person's income is available. So there'll be a tax reduction there. And then for individuals making from 150,000 to 250,000, we have an incremental tax increase up to 6% on their marginal rates. From 250 to 600,000, it's an increase of up to 7%. And for people making more than $600,000 a year, the marginal tax rate would be 8%. The purpose behind that is we feel, contrary to our Republican colleagues, that we should not be cutting uh, revenue for public education education and higher education. We need to give more resources for those things. And yet the people who are in the best position to help us with that, to step up to the plate and contribute a little more, are those who have done really well in the past few years and those who are doing well right now. Mm -hmm. So that's a fundamental part of our um, income tax proposal is to basically reintroduce progressivity to our income tax structure in the state of Utah. Okay, explain what that means. Well, what it means is those who are, are doing well pay a little more in marginal mm -hmm. income tax for the additional high dollar amounts that they make than those who are on the lower end of the income tax scale. It's fair, basically, is what it is. And and this is something that we have in the federal tax system. It's something that most uh, uh, tax uh, policy individuals feel is a good idea, and we agree with that. The second thing that we're doing uh, that's new, new and different is instead of taking a sales tax system that we have in the state of Utah that is basically a Swiss cheese amalgam of some have to pay it and some don't, and uh, our economic activities have moved into more and more areas that don't pay at all, such as services, uh, instead of trying to do that or trying to reform that or add to it, we believe that the better way 
to lower the rate and broaden the base, which is an appropriate tax policy objective when you're talking about economic services, is to put in place a gross receipts tax, mm -hmm. which means that every business in the state of Utah will pay a relatively small amount of their gross revenue in taxes. Uh, our rate is 0.9%, less than 1%. And for me, as a small business owner, and uh, I have my own law firm, this is going to be a new tax. It's going to be more money than I've ever paid in the past for, for that particular thing. I'm okay with that, though, because it's good tax policy, number one. And number two, it's going to result in most people in the state of Utah, probably 90% of them, paying less in taxes because we do get rid of the sales tax. Uh -huh. Okay, talk about this, because you've worked on both sides mm -hmm. of this particular issue uh, in your position, uh, the numerous positions you have. How is this being received, and how are, how are the kind of sides dividing up right now on these proposals? Well, it's a new proposal. It, it's only been with us for about 24 hours now to kind of wade through some significant changes. Uh, gross receipts is not something that Utah has traditionally done. Um, it does have inherently some tax layering in terms of business-to-business -business transactions. You would tax something all the way along that process instead of what we've traditionally done in Utah with only applying sales tax at the final mm -hmm. transaction point. So working through that, working through a lot of people who would become um, tax collectors and therefore have to remit is a significant change. And um, it probably comes with some compliance burdens um, for businesses that haven't traditionally collected. And with any new proposal, as we've seen with the plans that the Republican side has, has brought forward, often you need to spend some time digging through them. The tax bills are not are not small, they're usually very long, and wading through them with, with professionals and practitioners is really important to understand all of the intended and unintended consequences mm -hmm. of a shift in policy. Kate, what do you think of progressive income tax? It's one of those where can you not help whenever you hear a tax program to look at your own income and then decide where you would fall. Um, and so that's definitely the first thing that had crossed my mind when I saw your plan. Um, you know, under the plan, I'm, I'm probably one of those unique individuals under the Republican plan where I see a tax increase um, because I don't have children at home. Um, under your plan, I'm likely also still seeing a little bit more than I than I would currently. Um, but you know, it's an idea I'm, I would actually like to talk about more. The question, I guess, is whether we'll get to talk about it and whether we have enough time to talk about it before the session starts or a special session comes okay, Let's talk about it for a second, Brian, because that has become a, the heart of some concern, is that it's maybe happening in a special session this next week. What are you hearing about that issue? Is there enough time for people to digest even this plan that came out this week and for this special session? Well, they're going to have another tax reform task force meeting on Monday. Um, they, I think, have the meat of what they want to bring to a spe special se session done, uh, but they're just trying to chip away around the edges mm -hmm. and, and you know try to get a few more votes on board. Talking with a number of lawmakers, they're getting pressure from their vo voters who don't understand the need for this. Lawmakers are telling me leadership, Republican leadership, has not done a good job selling this idea, why we need to do it um, and why we need to do it now. Why can't they wait for the spe special session? They don't like the ideas that are being put forward to change funding for mm -hmm. education. So there's a lot of moving parts out there and legislative le leadership at least has not done a good job of convincing the public of the need to do this. Will they have the votes to do this? Yeah, if it comes down to it. But there's going to be a lot of lawmakers, re Republicans in swing seats, who are going to have a really tough vote. Let, let me show a, a, a tweet from uh, a, governor, a governor candidate, uh, Amy Winder Newton, Councilman, because I think it's interesting getting to what Brian Schott was just saying. Uh, Amy Winder Newton tweeted, hey, state legislators, I guess that's you also represent, <laughs> can we please save tax reform for the legislative session in Jan? It seems a special session 
during the holidays when people aren't paying attention is a bad idea. Something as important as this deserves robust public comment and debate. Yeah, Brian. Uh, pub per Perception is reality in politics. Um, so it seems like they're rushing into this, but if you look at it, they've been talking to this since the beginning of the session last year, and then they had a number of meetings around the state, and they've had tax reform meetings. So they've been talking about this for the good part of a year. So. Uh, that's a little bit of a bad faith argument, I think, but made made by Congress by by Councilwoman uh, Winder Newton. It's a little bit of a bad faith argument because they've been talking about this for a long time, um, but. In politics, perception is reality, so everyone's like, why are you rushing? Well, yeah, so if people think you're rushing, then then you prob probably are. One of the things I think inter is interesting to this point for you, Representative, is uh, a comment from you this week. Uh, people are wondering, do the Democrats feel like we need to do something? And you said yes. So uh, kind of identify yeah. that issue a little bit, because you're not saying leave it all alone. No, we're not. We think that it needs to be revisited, and we need to make some adjustments in our budget structure right now. But I do agree that it's not necessary to do it in a special session. I think that our tax proposal was presented as something as an alternative to what the Republicans are speaking about because we want people in the state of Utah to know Democrats don't have ideas here. I mean we do have ideas, good ones, and we want to talk about them. But the last time we did tax reform was in 2008 and we had a lead up period of over two years mm -hmm. where we were talking about it in detail and that was primarily just the income tax. We are handling a much bigger picture now. We're trying to do a lot more in terms of uh, basic restructuring with many moving parts. I do think that it would be beneficial for the people of the state of Utah and for us as a legislature if we slowed things down and took a longer look at this. It doesn't have to be done in special session. It doesn't even have to be done in the 2020 general session. Our proposal is not ready for prime time in terms of being presented as an alternative bill in the special session. It's some ideas about how we can move forward in a better way for the people of the state of Utah but we need to have more input. Okay. You know, one of the things that's interesting is the proposal that the Republicans have put forward, I always think it was kind of like part A. It involves sales tax, it involves some income tax cuts, but there's this part B that's still out there, floating out there, that deals with the education earmark for, for public education, yeah. and that is still largely a, a bullet point plan. It's not yet in bill form, but they're so much tied together, and we haven't fully seen that, and to not really see that in advance of the, the hearing next week and, and, and then a potential special session at the end of next yeah. week is, is a little bit troubling that these are tied yet we can only see one part so far in, in bill form. Yeah. So, so explain what the plan is, what you're hearing in those back rooms, because what, what Kay just said is true, right? This, this, this constitutional earmark has been in effect since 1946? Yeah, I, or even I, earlier, I think. So uh, for a very long time, we've had this where it's been earmarked for, for public ed. Maybe, Brian, take a second on that, because that seems to be at the heart of it, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, Representative, the Democrats are not proposing to get rid no, of that. We, that's correct. We are not proposing to get rid of the earmark. Yeah, okay. So the way, the easiest way to explain it, because uh, the way that they uh, do the budget here in the state is very com complicated. There are two pots of money. One pot is all the income tax, business and personal, that goes in and then has to go to education. The other pot is all the other money that comes in and that pays for everything else. And lawmakers want to get rid of the constitutional earmark so that it, they have one pot of money and that will give them a lot more flexibility in the way that they do the, the budget, but that will require a constitutional 
amendment. Um, they are trying to come up with a way to fund schools without that, with, without that constitutional requirement. So what we've been reporting on for a little more than a month is that they're looking at a way to uh, allow local entities to increase property taxes without having to go through a truth in taxation hearing, because uh, that's a very cumbersome process and it's hard to get through. So they may tie property taxes to change C CPI, the, the economy, which will allow it to increase modestly with inflation. There'll be some uh, uh, breakers in there to keep it from going too high. At the same time, on the state level, they want to guarantee the funding of the growth in schools every year. And they also want to take the basic unit of student funding, which is the WWPU, and tie that to the chain C CPI as well. Um, I'm not sure that they're going to be able to get anybody on board with that. Uh, this is definitely not going to be ready for, for the, 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 yeah. the, the special session at all. I want to break the, oh, do you have something on the first? Well, I was just going to say that's, that's part of this interesting issue is that the Republicans in the legislature has very much tried to shift this argument to being about a structural imbalance and having all the money in one pot so that they can do the important job of, of weighing all the needs of the state and divvying out the money. But if we don't solve the education piece, we actually truly haven't solved the structural imbalance and it feels like the bill that's being put forward then is is still not quite ready. Uh -huh. So I want to talk about that uh, education side because the response from uh, the Utah Education Association was pretty quick. Representative, I want to I want to read that because President Heidi Matthews immediately, this is to Kate's point right here, said the overall tax proposal plus the education piece cuts hundreds of millions of dollars from our schools. That's not good for kids. It's wrong for our teachers. It's wrong for our schools. It's wrong for our students, and it's wrong for Utah. Heidi Matthews is right. <laughs> I mean, we're 51st in the country. And what we're seeing from proposed by our Republican leadership is we want to cut the revenue for public and higher education even further. I just don't understand how that makes any sense. And I don't think it lines up with the values and priorities of Utahns. How, how do, does the legislature right now think, let's say if that proposal starts going forward, they'll handle that bridge because the Utahns have to vote on that, that change. What is, what is the parallel track that you're seeing well, even I don't, now? I think that's the problem. And it goes to what Kate was saying, which is we're trying to put in place next week in a special session a budget that assumes one of two things, either that we will pass something next November that deals with the constitutional earmark and removes it, or that voters won't approve that. We just don't know what the answer is. Mm -hmm. So you can't, I don't think that we should be going ahead with making decisions about budgetary uh, changes without knowing the complete picture. Right. One more thing on this, Kate, not many people know this, but since you, know, you, you love higher ed so much, higher ed is also tied to that constitutional earmark. Potential impacts for it's definitely true. I mean, uh, we focused a lot in the discussions this summer on public education, but higher education is tied. You are also part of that restricted pool of money for income tax. So what happens with this earmark is important to all of the higher ed institutions as well, and whether that funding will be replaced, mm -hmm. um, you know, how these different um, property tax proposals will impact you, because higher ed is not able to um, draw those, those local district funds like a public school is. Mm -hmm. And so there's, a, there's still a lot of moving parts, I think, in there, and I, I don't know that higher ed exactly knows where they will yeah. uh, ultimately come out as, at this point. What I think is interesting here, too, is based on some great reporting you're doing, uh, Brian, is uh, oftentimes you try to do a tax cut right before an election. It's all help for you, helpful if you can do that. But our legislators right now are not in the position where that's uniformly true if, that was, if they are successful. Is that right? Well, some of the things that people are talking to me about is they're saying that it feels like the tax cut is driving this overall d discussion. They, uh, they've been talking about it has to have a tax cut, it has to have a tax cut. And that makes 
makes sense because uh, we are running these huge, well, like they're huge, but large budget sur surpluses every year, but that's because it's in the income tax, which goes to education. Um, the sales tax portion of it is lagging behind. So that's why lawmakers want to do this. Uh, but they're taught, and, and they know that they're going to have another large income tax sur surplus ne ne next year. It's going to be over 100 million again. So they want to give some of mm -hmm. that back. Uh, but it just seems like they're not quite able to put their finger on what they want to do and they're not really able to uh, explain why they need to do this and that's that's where it's falling apart for them mm -hmm. they're not able to explain to voters and and legislators are hearing it from their voters we don't know why you want to do do this now it doesn't make any sense uh, what one more point before we leave it uh, Kate so as a as a councilwoman you're involved in property tax issues at a very local level uh, tell us just really quickly what this proposal the, the Republican proposal right now does on property tax issues and how that impacts education also the, the, um, the proposal, as it's currently understood, would be to replace the earmark for public education with the ability for uh, property tax for local school districts to be tied to chain CPI, probably about 2%. And they could have that just automatically rise without going through a truth and taxation hearing. Truth and taxation was a, was a policy put in place in uh, 1985. It um, requires this hearing, and they are painful hearings. Um, my city uh, mm -hmm. this year, we thought about doing a truth and taxation hearing, immediately heard from people, decided we were comfortable with the revenue we had, decided not to. Mm -hmm. it, it, it was a deterrent before we even got to a hearing. And so that has been something that, that local governments, uh, local school boards have said, this is, this is why, legislature, we have not raised property taxes, because you have made it very hard for us. If this proposal were to go forward and allow for this chain CPI for uh, local school districts to take place, one, it likely would evaporate the tax cuts within a few years, um, where you'd be you know, back up to a total tax picture that, that doesn't feel like a cut for anyone. But you'd also have to wonder, quite frankly, I think as a local government official, I could make the case that public safety is equally important, and perhaps we should be able to also uh, rise with mm -hmm. inflation for that very critical government service as well. Okay. Interesting. Uh, one last thing, Representative, the, the Democrats uh, plan on the sales tax on food and hygiene products, two things also that differ from Right, the Republicans right. are proposing. Well, if we get rid of the sales tax completely, there'll be no sales tax on either food or hygiene, and that will be a good thing. There are a couple of components in the Republican uh, presentation that we like. One is we like the fact that there are no going to be no sales taxes on feminine hygiene products. That's a good thing. We think that there ought to be no sales tax on food either, and they're moving in the opposite wrong direction. And that on that point, in sense of taking our sales tax of 1.75 percent and moving it up to 4.65 percent or maybe it's eight, five percent for food. And that's going to make it more difficult for the people who are really struggling to literally put food on their table. So uh, there are things that we like. I, we like the fact that there's an earned income tax credit component to the Republican plan. So it's not all bad. And I think that they have tried to put some things in there to make it attractive for Democrats and try and peel away some Democratic votes. I don't know that that's gonna happen, but they'd love to have this be a bipartisan uh, proposal if we have a special session and they pass mm -hmm. something next week. Okay. Uh, the opinion of the panel, special session does happen next week? Yeah, I think okay. so. Brian's a yes? Probably. <laughs> probably. <laughs> We're going to get a probably. Okay. I think I'm going to probably, too. I, I question about whether they need to certify to the governor they can deliver uh -huh. 1538. 
We okay. haven't gotten the call yet, and here we are, you know, the last day of the week. We, we have to wait until Monday to get the call at this okay. point. Hopefully it comes after the U of U football game. Uh, we'll <laughs> get go. the call about that. Uh, let's switch gears a little bit to what's happening in Washington, D.C., because our own uh, delegation is weighing in on the impeachment proceedings. Brian, uh, most recent developments. Nancy Pelosi's had a... Uh, victories. Well, uh, I think the day that Ben McAdams has been dreading is coming. Um, uh, Nancy Pelosi directed uh, the Democrats, the, the chairman of the committees to come up with, to draft articles of impeachment against the president. This is a vote that uh, Ben McAdams has not wanted to take because I think he's damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. If he votes in favor of impeachment, members of his base uh, are going to be outraged. His district does not like President Trump. Uh, President Trump only got 39% of the vote there. In 2016, he's underwater. It's uh, according to our polling. In fact, uh, that's probably where his approval ratings are the lowest in the state. If he does vote in favor, if he does vote against impeachment, then the Republicans are going to continue to car carpet bomb him all the way to the 2020 election. So he's really—I uh, I think he's been hoping he wouldn't have to take this vote, but he's going to have to. Where is he on this? Give, well, us, give us the I'll analysis. tell you, I, I think it is a tough vote for Ben, but I think he's going to, in all likelihood, be persuaded by the weight of evidence that clearly shows that there was an impermissible use of taxpayer money in an, ex, in an attempt to obtain help for, personal, for the personal benefit of Donald Trump in this next campaign in 2020. And that's a problem. I mean, it, the stuff that he has admitted to doing, I think, makes it clear that uh, anybody with a conscience in the House is going to have to vote for impeachment because it's a clear violation of law. Now, I heard Senator Lee's comments about this, and I guess we'll just have to agree to disagree about okay. whether there's clear evidence of wrongdoing. Uh, maybe we should hear those. Uh, why don't I read, read those to you? Because it is interesting, because Mike Lee is definitely on the other side of what you just said right there. Uh, Mike Lee, in fact, said, this was on a radio show this week, this is absurd. They shouldn't pass articles of impeachment because there hasn't, he hasn't done anything impeachable. He hasn't done anything that violates the law. He hasn't even done anything wrong. He just had a conversation that involved a foreign leader and there was nothing wrong with that. But in the interest of transparency, he's part of a group of Republican senators who are helping the White House quarterback their response to impeachment. And he's the co-chair of President Trump's re-election campaign in the state. So of course he's going to say that. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that Democrats are going to take advice from a, a, a Republican on, 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 on how to approach this. Okay, they, they may not. That's you're, you're being sarcastic. <laughs> yeah, yes. we, we understand that's, the, that, that's true. Uh, now, Kate, so this, what's interesting is uh, not many of our other representatives are weighing in at all on this one. No, I mean, uh, Congressman Stewart has long been a defender of the president uh, from very, you know, early days in his campaign and throughout his presidency. But others of our delegation have, have been a little bit quieter. Um, I think often when someone gets quiet, they don't want to defend. Um, but they're members of the same party, so they're being very careful. Mitt Romney has been one that is, has you know, publicly said, look, I'll call balls and strikes when I see them. If I see something, I'm going to call it. Um, if I feel like something's you know, within the field of play, even if it's not my favorite thing that he's done, or I, I wouldn't personally conduct myself that way, then I'll, then I'll stay quiet. But you're not seeing many of the others rush to the president's defense. You're seeing them be quiet. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that what Kate says is the key thing here is that you can predict where the four members of the House of Representatives are going to come down, I think. And Senator Lee has already made clear where he comes down. My question is, are we going to have Senator Romney come out and say, 
pretty much what I think the, the undisputed facts show, which is this was improper, it was a violation of law, and, uh, you know, are we going to get Senator Romney to vote to impeach if the House impeaches and he goes, uh, it goes to the Senate? Are we going to get Senator Romney's vote to convict, rather, mm -hmm. on that impeachment charge? What do you think, Brian? Your sources are top. Well, uh, I think that Romney, um, he's in uh, sort of an easier position because he'll never appear on the same ballot with, with Pre President Trump. Um, he's not up until 2024, and President Trump would not be running for another term at that point. So he's got a lot of lee leeway there. Uh, I wonder if he's going to be the first Republican. Um, to vote to remove the president from office. If he does, I'm sure a few others will follow. Will they get to the 20 needed to, to remove him from office? No, they're not going to do that. But I think it would be a stunning rebuke to the White House if you got five, six, seven Republicans to break ranks with the, the party and vote to remove him from office. That, that one would sting a little bit. Romney, will he be the first? He's probably in the best position to be the first one to stand up and, and do that. Okay. It's going to be the last comment. We'll watch closely. Thank you for your great insights tonight on these very important issues. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode of The Hinkley Report. If you like listening to the experts talking about the issues, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app.